The website Lifehacker used to run a series called Takeaway Truth. They'd compare what the advertising of the big takeaway chains promised. They'd compare what the advertising promised to the reality. And unsurprisingly, they showed if you expected to get what the advertising promised, you'd be pretty disappointed. The chips were less numerous, the burgers less sumptuous in appearance. Uh, People have also done research and shown that over time, fast food offerings have got smaller and smaller. You pay more, but get less. Ever wonder why you leave those restaurants feeling unsatisfied and shortchanged? Most of us know with advertising, it's rarely the case of what you see is what you get. But although we know there's exaggeration and they'll amplify the good and hide the bad, we also expect or at least desire a degree of truth in advertising. But we're going to see today that with God's people at the time of Micah, there was no truth in advertising or much else. And we're going to hear how God responds to this corruption. Last week, Mitch opened up the first part of Micah 6 to us. We asked the question, what does God want? Does he want more religion, a thousand sheep sacrificed? No. What he wants is his people to, as Micah 6, 8 famously says, the good he wants from humanity is to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It's a well-known sentence because it's easy to remember, but it's pretty hard to do. Today we're looking at the rest of chapter 6, stopping at verse 16, and we're going to hear how God's people have failed on all three accounts. They haven't acted justly, they don't love mercy, and they don't walk humbly with their God, and because of this injustice... God's judgment comes. And if God's judgment is coming, we should listen up, which is what verse 9 calls us to do, to listen up because if we do, we'll find wisdom. So verse 9, Micah 6, 9. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Uh, Now I'm going to get technical for a second. This verse has got three lines. The first and the last lines say, listen up, take heed. And because the first and the last line say pretty much the same thing, it means the middle line is the focus. What's the central message? Fearing God's name is wisdom. Something I've noticed over the last couple of years, it's something uh, that's come through memorising some Bible verses, it's a project I've been on for the last couple of years. What struck me is that, particularly in the Old Testament, one of the ways it talks about faithful Israelites is those who fear the Lord. Faithful Israelites are people who fear the Lord. So this is what Psalm 22 says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. That first line, you who fear the Lord, that's not an uncommon way of talking about God's faithful people. 
They're the people who fear God. Now, in the New Testament, we don't see this as often. Christians aren't often called people who fear God, those who fear God, but it is there. So listen to Revelation 19. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And did you see that? God's servants, his people, those who are praising him, just like in the psalm, those who praise him are those who fear him. Now, what's it mean to fear God? It's a term that's often misunderstood. If you're afraid of spiders, if you see one, you run away or you get someone else to come and kill it for you. Is that what it means to fear God, to run away from him? No. Fearing God means to recognise that he is God and you are not. He is God. We are not. It's to take God seriously. Uh, the middle line of that psalm is really helpful. Psalm 22, uh, 23, fearing God is to honour him as God. To recognise we're dealing with weighty things when we when it comes to God. Fearing God means treating God as God. It means being gripped by him as we meet him in the gospel. If God is God and we're gripped by him, then when he calls us to obey, we obey. When he calls us to repent, we repent. Fearing God also means when he tells us that we are, ado- we are adopted into the sonship of Jesus by faith and by the spirit we come boldly into his presence and call him Abba, Father, knowing the same love the Father has for the Son, well, fearing God means taking this intimate truth, this assured truth. We take God's truth seriously. Fearing God has got some bad press because we make God into a heavenly Captain Von Trapp, only more distant and more authoritarian, high on power, low on personality. We think that's what the God is that we are to fear. That means a dour and distant religion. But this understanding of fearing God, which sadly many Christians have perpetrated, doesn't take God seriously enough. It doesn't realise that God came near to us in the person of Jesus and he is near us by his spirit. In Acts chapter 9, Luke describes the church that used to gather in Jerusalem but are scattered because of persecution. He says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Fearing God means being encouraged. It also means being on mission. Did you see that? Increasing in numbers. Fearing God means life on mission. 
And we also see this in 2 Corinthians 5. If you seriously fear God, it'll be shown in speaking to people about Jesus. Uh, This is what it says. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. In 2 Corinthians 5, the bigger context is the reality of God's judgment means we will personally rely on the death of Jesus to be reconciled to God and we desperately aim to persuade others to take the gospel to them too. This is what it means to fear God. It's not dour, distant religion, but a living faith on mission. And knowing this fear of God is true wisdom. Since God and his gospel is the deep truth of the world, knowing him, trusting him, living God's way is true wisdom. But in Micah's day, in Micah's day, very few of the city elite wanted God's wisdom. They didn't want to take God seriously. They didn't want to live God's way. They didn't want to reach the nations. They wanted to live their own way and get whatever they could out of it. Their own way was to put themselves first, to lie and cheat, to be violent and steal as long as they could get what they want. Verse 10, and this is God speaking. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars and their tongues speak speak deceitfully. God's calling out to the city, and I think the city means Jerusalem. He's calling out to the rich and powerful elite, be wise and fear me, fear God. He's saying the smart money is on obey, is in obeying God. But he said they want to get rich and they don't care who they rip off or abuse to get there. What's the short ephah? An ephah was a unit of measure in ancient Israel and they were ripping people off by using a slightly smaller than standard measuring ephah. This measuring cup has been a bone of contention in our family for quite some time. Uh, If you look at the bottom, it says it's made by Tupperware, so it's a, a brand with a good reputation, and it very clearly says on the top, one cup. But it's always felt a little small, just a little on the small side. And finally this week, I put it on the scales and I weighed how much water it holds. Now, this is a real question, a test for the students. How much water should a metric cup hold? Don't know, that's not very good. Don't tell me you don't know. Someone, 250 mils. Well, this cup only holds 220 mils. It says it holds one cup. If it was telling the truth, it would say, I hold 88% of a cup. Now, this isn't the end of the world. All this means is that cakes in the Saunders house are 12% smaller and it's probably good for us. But if you go to the material shop and you think you're buying one metre of fabric and you pay for one metre of fabric, 
and you only get 88 centimetres, that's stealing. Or if you've got a beast at the sale yards and it really weighs a tonne, but they've rigged the scales and it only shows 880 kilograms, you're being robbed. This kind of thing was common in ancient Israel, in ancient Jerusalem. And you know what? If you don't get caught, if you sell your 88% measuring cup and no one knows the difference and you get 12% more profit every time you sell your whatever you make out of that cup, it feels wise. It feels like the smart move. You get rich. You feel like you're smarter than the average bear. But that's not what God wants. What does God want? Micah 6, 8. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Ripping people off with rigged scales isn't just. It's not right. Justice or righteousness isn't measured with short ephahs or false weights. It's measured by God. And Lying isn't loving mercy. The word mercy is the word for loving kindness or covenant faithfulness. Lies aren't faithful. And you also read they were doing violence. It doesn't say what the violence was. We do get a bit more of a hint in chapter 7 next week. Maybe though it was standover tactics, predatory loans and then beating people up when they can't repay. That's hardly being humble. In fact, all these sins are using power to get what you want. But humbly walking with God doesn't violently grasp for power. Through Micah, God is calling out to Jerusalem, to the powerful ruling people, calling them away from what feels like wisdom because they're getting richer and richer, they're getting more and more powerful It seems like the smart money is to ignore God and to do what everyone else is doing. But God calls out, warning, this ultimately is folly. It's foolish because even if no one else catches you, even if no one else stops you, God sees. And God will bring justice. God won't let them get away with it. And so he promises to frustrate them with futility. Verse 13, therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but save nothing. Because what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. Greed can't satisfy. The reason they were using dodgy weights and small measures is because of greed. They wanted more and more and didn't care how they got it. And it doesn't satisfy. That's what greed's like. It will never be satisfied. I think that's the point of verse 14. In verse 14, it says they'll eat. They'll have food on the table probably plenty of it, but never enough. They'll never be satisfied. Greed is punishment itself. You can eat and eat, but never be satisfied. The deep longing you're trying to feel, it'll never happen. 
you're cursed even though you're surrounded by more than you can dream of. What God is threatening here is cursing. Instead of being blessed by God, if, if they keep living their own way, if they keep breaking covenant, they'll be cursed by God. These curses, these words in Micah 6 sound awfully like what God warned in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is just before the people entered the promised land. And Moses says, Deuteronomy 28 is a very key chapter, a beautiful chapter. It says, if you live God's way, if you wisely fear God, then you guys are going to be blessed when you enter my promised land. It's going to be paradise. It's going to be heavenly. But if not, have a listen. It's up on the screen. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees that I, this is Moses, I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed and on and on it goes. Here in Micah, there's a mix of God explicitly bringing hardship. They'll plant their seeds but get no crop. But also a deeper spiritual curse that when you look to be satisfied in greed, in having more money and more stuff, God says no matter how much you have, you'll never be satisfied and that in itself is God's judgment. It's like the fast food burger. When you see the ad, it looks so satisfying. But you get it and just looking at it, you know you'll be disappointed. And then you eat it. And I probably shouldn't say this on a day when we might have takeaway for lunch today, but you feel worse than when you were hungry. Greed is like this. Greed is the lie we tell ourselves that if I only have just a bit more, then I'll be satisfied. One more dollar, one more pair of shoes, one more tool in the shed. But money and possessions can never satisfy You see this in the uber-rich. Why don't Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos just retire to the beach? Because they're looking for satisfaction in money, looking for satisfaction anywhere, but God will not work. You'll, You'll never be satisfied. Greed always leaves you wanting more, whether it's more money or more power or more fame, never satisfied. Because these things, these are good things, but they are poor alternatives to knowing the eternal and infinite God. But we can point our fingers at the elite, the super rich. We have this too, don't we? Thinking things or money will satisfy when only God can. I I feel this every time I get to the bottom of a delicious cup of coffee. It's so good to drink, but before you know it, you can see the bottom of the cup. I hate it. I want the cup to go on forever, to keep delighting my taste buds at the cost of my heart rate, but I'm not satisfied. I want more. And if we keep going and looking for satisfaction in anything other than God, this will always happen. 
The world around us might say greed and having money, possessions and power. Our culture says that's where wisdom and satisfaction will be found. But the truth is what Micah 6, 9 says. True wisdom and satisfaction can only be found in fearing God. But the people of the city, I might put this down for now before it falls down. But the people of the city, the people of Jerusalem weren't doing this. Instead of fearing God and following his ways, they were following in the worst of Israel's kings. And they think doing this will make them strong and wise, but instead they'll be ashamed. Verse 16 uh, you have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I'll give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. Uh, who are Omri and Ahab? Uh, they're two of the worst kings of Israel. Uh, this is how Omri's life is summed up. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. There's nothing good to say about Omri. Ahab was his son. Ahab is probably a little bit more well-known. He was the king during the time of Elijah and Elisha. He was the one who married Jezebel. And this is how his life was summed up. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And his dad was Omri. It just keeps getting worse. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. If Micah's speaking to the elite in Jerusalem, and I think he is, uh, this would have stung. Remember how the nation had been split in two? Uh, the northern kingdom was Israel. That's where Omri and Ahab were kings. And the southern kingdom was Judah. Its capital was Jerusalem. The southern kingdom thought they were better, more moral, more godly than the north. I mean, they had the temple of Yahweh, the true temple of Yahweh. But God says, Look at how you're living. You're exactly the same as those northerners. And that means you're going to suffer the same fate. Just as Israel was ruined when the Assyrians conquered, just as they were put to shame as Shalmanassah invaded and put their king in prison and ripped the people out of the land... God says, if you want to keep following the wisdom of idol worshippers, you'll serve and share their fate. Through Micah, God was calling to the city, calling them to live wisely by fearing him, uh, to stop their lies and thefts and idol worship and to turn to God and find satisfaction in him. God is calling the same 
to you and me today. Do you fear God? Do you take him seriously? If you do, then you'll take your sin seriously. And you'll recognize that God has shown you what is good and what he requires to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And you'll recognize that you haven't done that totally and completely. That instead of wisely fearing God, you're living with the wisdom of our culture. Wisdom that says to get what you can, however you can, look out for number one because no one else will. Wisdom that says you'll be satisfied if only you buy this product or that burger, but it will never satisfy. The first step to wisdom and fearing God is to recognize our sin and that we can do nothing about it, but that God has come near to us and he calls us to trust in the Lord Jesus and to find forgiveness and hope in him. The first step of fearing God is to trust in Jesus. And the next step, if you are trusting in Jesus, then we must live according to God's wisdom and not the values of our culture. If Jesus is our king, we live differently. God's wisdom says, do what is right, even when the world's wisdom says you're an idiot. So if the culture in your workplace is to lie to customers, to make a sale at any cost, to put the A-grade product on the top of the crate and fill up the bulk with bruised and mouldy stuff, well, God-fearers don't do that. This might mean standing up to your boss. It might cost you your job, and if it does, church, we need to stand with our brother or sister who lose their job for the sake of doing what is right. If you are the boss, it might mean your company doesn't make the profits of the one down the road, but those profits are built on deception and they will never satisfy. If the culture in your workplace is to shortchange the boss by dodging up the timesheets, followers of Jesus don't do that. It's not wise. If everyone else is lying to Centrelink or the ATO, we don't. Since we fear God and love his wisdom. And he sees even if the auditor never does. Now living this way might not seem wise to everyone else. Because you're not getting everything you can. Living for Jesus will often look stupid to people who don't know him. But true wisdom is fearing God, which on the ground means that we live and act justly and we love mercy and we walk humbly with God. Listen, the Lord is calling us. He's calling you to fear his name in wisdom. Let's pray. Father God, teach us to fear you, to know that you are God and we are not, 
to take you seriously by turning and trusting in Jesus and then living wholeheartedly for him. Make us wise as we fear you and live for you. Help us stand against what is sold to us as true wisdom, but which is unjust and unmerciful and proud. Strengthen us to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. Amen.